morning, Zion Presbyterian. It's good to be with you again this morning. This church is in the middle of a series on life with Jesus. You all have been looking at the gospel accounts and seeing who Jesus really is and what it really looks like to follow him. And we see that from the things that Jesus does in the gospels, but we also hear that from the things that Jesus says in the gospels. He tells us what life with him is like. And one of his favorite teaching tools for doing this is parables. Parables are just simple stories that Jesus told to illustrate what life with him is like in the kingdom of God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a parable of two debtors from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And so if you have a Bible or you can find the scripture in your your bulletin, let's turn our attention now to God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. We thank you that you tell us what you are like. And we also thank you that you tell us how we should live because it is often so surprising to us what you call us to do. It is against our our natural inclination, and we need to be instructed in the ways of the Lord. And so we pray that you would do that now. And would you give us ears to hear and to heed your instructions? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, I came across a news story about a 30-year-old Iowa woman named Jennifer Harris who was arrested for first-degree arson. In the middle, of ni- the middle of the night, Harris had set fire to the garage of Jim and Nikki Rasmussen. Now, thankfully, the Rasmussens woke up, and they were able to escape unharmed as the fire began to move over to their house. And an arson like this is, is newsworthy at the local level, 
But this story ended up on every national news network because of two unique details. First, Jennifer Harris had been the maid of honor at the Rasmussen's wedding just a few years ago. And second, she set fire to the home, to their home, because of something that happened on Facebook. See, according to Nikki Rasmussen, their friendship began to dissolve over an argument about plans for a birthday party. When Harris started saying mean things about Nikki on Facebook, Rasmussen unfriended her, and that set Harris off, who then set the house of her former best friend ablaze. Now, this woman is crazy, right? And that's why ABC and CBS and NBC all picked up this story. But before we pass too much judgment on Harris, we should acknowledge that this story really demonstrates something that's true of all of us. We also have a a natural resistance to forgiveness. We can hold on to even the smallest slights and let them fester and grow out of proportion. And we know that forgiveness is a good thing, at least in theory. Even if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, the scientific literature touts the benefits of forgiveness. And yet, every time that someone hurts us or offends us, we're pretty good at coming up with reasons why we shouldn't forgive them. We can't get them, let them get away with that. Or they need to learn their lesson. Or they've just done this one too many times. Well, in this story, we see that we're not alone in that. Jesus' apostles also struggled with this idea of forgiveness. These are the guys who, who followed Jesus around for three years, and they watched him forgive people's sins, and they heard him teach on forgiveness, and yet they are still resistant to this idea of forgiveness. But in this passage, Jesus makes it clear that a life with him is a life of forgiveness. A life with Jesus is a life of forgiveness. Now, before we go any further, I I want to acknowledge that forgiveness can be a very personal and complex matter, and I probably won't be able to address every question that you have about it in this sermon this morning. And so if you do have lingering questions, I would encourage you to to go and, and talk to one of the pastors, Jeff or Keaton, not Paul, he's still technically on sabbatical, even though he's here this morning. But this morning, I just want to look at three things from this passage. They are the call to forgive, the cost to forgive, and the capacity to forgive. The call, the cost, and the capacity to forgive. So first, we see the call to forgive. In the verses immediately preceding these, Jesus was talking about what to do when someone sins against you. And in those verses, the flow of thought is what to do if someone doesn't repent. But then Peter comes up to Jesus and asks him a question about what to do if someone does repent. He asks Jesus, so when my brother does sin against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? And then he just throws a number out there, as many as seven times. Now, I don't know what you think of Peter's suggestion that may seem high or low or reasonable to you. But I do know that Peter thought that he was being pretty generous. Because during this time, the teaching of the Jewish rabbis was three strikes and you're out. There's a Jewish writing named or called the the Yoma that records this teaching. It says, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time, 
he is not forgiven. So Peter offers more than double the ordinary limit. Surely that's enough, right? But then Jesus blows his suggestion out of the water. He says, I I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven, but it really doesn't matter which it is because Jesus is not giving us a specific limit to forgiveness. No, he is calling us as his disciples to practice forgiveness in a radical way. We are to forgive more times than we would care to count. Now, I imagine that Peter's response to this is similar to our natural response to this, which is, come on, Jesus. We're supposed to forgive people over and over and over with no limit at all? Isn't it pretty unrealistic to live that way? We should keep in mind what Jesus says in John 10.10, that he came so that we may have abundant life. And so whatever Jesus calls us to is not an unrealistic way to live. It's actually the best way to live. Because he knows what will happen if we don't practice forgiveness in this radical and repeated way. We will have an ever-shrinking circle of relationships with little to no intimacy with anyone. I hope this comes as no surprise to you, but all of us are sinners, and we will continue to be sinners until glory, which means that we are all constantly hurting and being hurt by one another's sins. And so if we were to go around canceling people when they messed up one too many times, there would eventually be no one left for us to cancel. Ongoing forgiveness is required for us to have real relationship with others. If we're going to build and maintain deep friendships with others, we have to forgive our friends when they're inconsiderate of us again or when they let us down again. Or if we want to be a part of a church, not just attend a church, but really belong to its community, then we have to continuously forgive the people in those churches when they're clicky or when they're gossip, or when they say ignorant things. Or I tell people in premarital counseling that what makes marriages work is repentance and forgiveness. In order for a marriage to last, spouses have to be willing to forgive one another over and over and over. Or in order for a family to remain intact, members have to be willing to forgive one another repeatedly. Because even when problems are addressed, Family systems are pretty slow to change. Without repeated forgiveness, we will have no real relationships with anyone. And so we can put a limit on forgiveness, but if we do, we will eventually burn all of our bridges and be left isolated. If you're younger here this morning, maybe you have seen that with some friends who jump from friend group to friend group because they they can't forgive one another. Or maybe if you're older, you have seen Some of your peers just slowly drift away from everyone because they've become embittered and angry. That's not the way that Jesus wants us to live. He wants us to have deep, intimate, abiding relationships with our friends, with our spouses, with our families, and with our fellow Christians. And that's why he calls us to practice forgiveness in this radical and repeated way. But here, I I want to address a question that that some people have, which is, is Jesus just asking us to allow people to walk all over us? Some of you here this morning 
have been tremendously hurt by others. And this call to repeated forgiveness may sound like you're supposed to expose yourself to further harm. And in fact, there have been some abusers who have weaponized verses like these in that way. So let me take a minute minute to explain what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that we should just naively pretend like nothing ever happened. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not immediately restoring trust to people either. I'll give you an example. Uh, My family doesn't have a dog, but let's just say that we did. And I invited one of our college students to come and take care of our dog while we were away for a weekend. And that student just did a horrible job. They didn't feed the dog all weekend. They left it in its crate. They never took it out to the bathroom. And anytime it made noise, they just yelled at it and kicked the crate. I can forgive that student for their mistreatment of my dog, but the next time I need a dog sitter, and I'm, am I going to call them? No. And so in calling us to forgive, Jesus is not asking us to put ourselves in the position to be harmed over and over and over. And so if you are here this morning and you, you are in a situation where someone is taking advantage of you without any repentance on their part, Jesus is not calling you to stay in that situation. He's not calling you to play the victim and just act like everything is okay. Now here, Jesus is referring to our ordinary daily relationships with imperfect people who are slow to change. And in those situations, he's calling us to forgive without number. Because that's what makes real relationships with sinners possible. But still, you might be thinking, this feels like a pretty tough ask. Well, Jesus knows what he's asking, and he illustrates this call to forgive with a parable that tells us about the cost to forgive. That's our second point this morning. And this parable is about a king with lots of servants who are indebted to him. And so one day he decides that he's going to collect on all of those debts. And there's one debtor that gets brought in who owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 sounds like a lot, even if we don't know what talents are. Well, this is actually an exorbitant amount of money. Talents during this time were the highest unit of money. And they were equivalent to 20 years worth of wages. And this guy owed 10,000 talents. So if you do the math, this means that he owed the king 200,000 years worth of wages. Now, one time I, I was looking at this parable with a student, and they said, how did he accrue that kind of debt? Well, it's hyperbole. It's sort of like how kids say, a gazillion dollars. And so, of course, this servant couldn't pay his debt. And the king is about to sell his whole family to become indentured servants. But before that happens, the servant falls on his knees and says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And surprisingly, the the king is, is moved to pity and he does him one better. He doesn't just give him more time. He cancels the debt and releases the servant. Now, what happens to that debt? Does it just disappear? Well, it does for the servant, but not for the king. No, the the king takes a huge hit. Forgiving this guy's debt costs the king 10,000 talents. So when I was in college, I I faced a similar situation to this, though a little less drastic. 
I, I went to college at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and the main drag right next to campus is called the Strip. And they've since redone that road, but when I was in college, the Strip didn't provide great driving conditions. The lanes were very narrow, and there were no turn lanes, and on top of that, the, the traffic lights were very close together. So driving on the Strip was just very choppy. You would speed up and then slow down and speed up and slow down. And one day, as I was driving on the Strip, there was this guy behind me who, who wasn't paying attention. And so when I hit my brakes, he rear-ended me. And we pulled off into a gas station to look at the damage. And it wasn't terrible. My car was still drivable. The, the bumper just was a little bit out of shape. And this guy really did not want to file an accident report. And I later found out it's because he had landed in a rough patch and just couldn't afford to have an accident go on his driving record or insurance. So when I saw that the car was, was drivable, we agreed that we, he would just pay out of pocket once I got the, the damage assessed. So we exchanged contact info and we drove away. Well, a few weeks later, I, I got the, the damage assessed and I contacted this guy and told him how much it was going to be to fix the bumper. And he said, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get you the money. Just, just give me a little bit more time. A couple weeks went by, and we hadn't heard from him, and so reached out to this guy again, and he gave the same answer. And we went through a few rounds of this until my dad helped me to realize that this guy just needed to be forgiven for what had happened. But that still meant that I had a messed up bumper. And I, or, or really my dad, had to pay the cost of getting that bumper fixed. Well, that's the nature of forgiveness that Jesus illustrates with this parable. It means that we pay the cost for something that someone else has done wrong. And we all intuitively understand that wrongdoing requires pay repayment of some sort. When someone sins against us, what do we want to do? We want to make them pay. This is why Carrie Underwood sings, I dug my keys into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, and I carved my name into his leather seats, maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Now, your vengeance may have not reached country song levels, but the human heart is pretty creative at coming up with ways to get back at people. When our spouse hurts us, we act coldly towards them so that they feel that they've done something wrong. Or when a coworker sends an email to the company criticizing our work, we blast back an empty, another email laying out all the ways that they have fallen down on the job and we're having to pick up for their slack. And we do this because we innately understand that sin does damage that is costly to repair. And that's why we're resistant to forgive people. It's because we want the other person to pay the cost. But by telling this parable, Jesus demonstrates to us that he knows that radical and repeated forgiveness is not easy. It's not like just hitting the delete button on a Word document over and over. He knows that it costs us something. And yet he still calls us to absorb that damage that is done by someone else's sin instead of making them pay for it. Now, practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, the pastor, Tim Keller, is instructive here. He's getting ready to release a, a book on forgiveness in November. It's 300 pages long. So if you have any questions about forgiveness, he's probably the guy to turn to. Uh, but I read this from Tim Keller somewhere else. He says that real forgiveness looks like three things. First, 
It means that we don't deal with a person according to their sins. And so, of course, that means we don't key their cars. But it also means that we don't openly berate or make passive-aggressive comments about what someone has done wrong. It also means that we don't act coldly towards them or avoid them altogether. And it also means that we don't bring up their wrongdoings in a later conversation to use as ammo against them. So we don't deal with a person according to their sins. It also means that we don't bring up a person's sins with other people. Now, that is, that is not to say that we can't ever talk about the ways that we have been hurt, but there's two ways for us to do that. One is for us to process our pain as we work towards forgiveness. The other is to attempt to hurt that person's reputation with other people. But if we have truly forgiven someone, then we won't go around telling everyone how they've wronged us, but we've forgiven them. And third, this also means that we don't dwell on a person's sins internally. This is probably the most difficult one of all because it involves not just our behavior, but our hearts. And especially down here in the South, we are very good at being nice to people on the outside while holding a grudge on the inside. We can nurse bitterness and contempt for years. But forgiveness means letting go of that ill will, even if it's justly deserved. That is what it is to forgive. It is absorbing the relational damage and paying the cost yourself rather than making the other person pay. But how can we learn to forgive this way? Where do we get the resources to absorb the cost of forgiveness as Jesus calls us to? Well, that takes us to our final point, which is the capacity to forgive. So back in our parable, immediately after the first servant has his debt forgiven, he goes out and he finds another servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii at this time was equivalent to one day's wage. So a hundred denarii was about three months' worth of wages. It's not an insubstantial stump, sum, but it still pales in comparison to the debt of the first servant. And yet, the f- first servant seizes this man and he starts choking him, demanding that he would repay the debt. And if you were to compare verses 26 and verse 29, you would notice that the second servant does and says almost exactly what the first servant does before the king. He falls before his creditor and he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. But the first servant does the exact opposite of what the king did. Rather than forgive the debt, he throws him in prison until it has all been repaid. And verse 31 says that the other servants saw this and they were greatly distressed. So they went and told the king. They knew that this is not what the first servant should have done. They knew that the first servant should have forgiven the second servant. But here's the question. Why didn't the first servant know that? Why was he not able to let go of this much smaller debt? The answer is that he didn't understand the enormous act of forgiveness that he had received. We get a hint of this in verse 26, when the first servant thinks that he can pay his debt with just a little bit more time. He didn't comprehend that the debt the king forgave him was completely unpayable. 
And then in verse 32, when the king calls in the first servant again, he has to connect the dots for him. He says, I forgave you all that debt. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Jesus is telling us here that the capacity to forgive others comes from understanding how much we have been forgiven. Our capacity to forgive others comes from understanding how much we have been forgiven. Some of you may recognize the name Larry Nasser. He became infamous back in 2016 when the news broke that he had been abusing gymnasts both at Michigan State and on the U.S. national team for decades. In time, 265 victims came to light. With such high-profile names as Olympic gold medalist Ali Raisman, Gabby Douglas, and Simone Biles. Well, there's a woman named Rachel Den Hollander who was the first victim to publicly accuse Nasser of his abuse. And she was also the last person to confront Nasser at his sentencing hearing in court. And her 36-minute address to Nasser is amazing. You can go online and find a video or a transcript of the whole thing. But at one point in her address, she looks at Nasser and she says, I extend my forgiveness to you. How could she do that? How could she extend forgiveness to a man who had repeatedly hurt her and so many other girls? Well, in that same address, Rachel Den Hollander spoke of the gospel of Christ, which was so sweet to her. And then she appealed to Nasser based on the sacrificial love portrayed by God himself, who loves us so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. Rachel Den Hollander was able to forgive Larry Nasser because she understood how much God had forgiven her in Christ Jesus. And this is the only way for us to grow in our capacity to forgive as well. If we try to forgive out of sheer willpower, we will click, quickly hit our limit, maybe even before seven times. Or if we try to forgive people simply out of a sense of duty, in time we will find that our forgiveness is pretty superficial. Our anger will come bubbling up again and we will realize that even though we said we had forgiven them, we hadn't really forgiven that person from our hearts. No, what we need is to have our hearts changed by an experience of love and forgiveness. And that only happens when we comprehend how great our debt is that has been forgiven in Christ. But there's just one problem here. That is that we don't often feel ourselves to be very great sinners. And I think there's several reasons for that. One is simply our busyness. We rarely slow down long enough to reflect on the true condition of our lives. And that's one of the reasons that having a, a weekly confession of sin in our worship services is important. Another reason is that we're just really good at justifying ourselves. We're very good at coming up with any number of excuses that legitimize our behavior. And yet another reason is that we just have bad standards. We know that we're imperfect people, but at least we're not as bad as that guy. It's not like I'm Vladimir Putin or anything. Well, I want to press into this last reason for just a moment. 
The Bible teaches us that we are made to live for God's glory. That's what the opening question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches us, that our chief end, our, our main purpose in life is to glorify God. And so anytime that we live for anything other than God's glory, it's an offense to God. Anytime that we live selfishly in any way, anytime that we put what we want before what he wants, anytime that we love anything more than him, it is like we are slapping God in the face. And if we're honest, that's how we live most of our lives, right? And so day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, our debt grows greater. And we see the greatness of our sin when we look at the cross of Christ. The cross shows us that our, great was so de- our debt was so great that we could never repay it for ourselves. The Son of God had to leave heaven and come to earth and pay the cost to forgive us by dying in our place. That's how great our debt is. But oh, how much greater is God's forgiveness. As the Apostle Paul tells us, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And when we grasp just how great God's forgiveness is, it changes our hearts and it gives us the capacity to forgive over and over and over. We'll see just how small others' debts are to us in comparison to the one that we owe to God. And it will become our joy to extend to others the great mercy that we have received from the Lord. But that's not how this parable ends, is it? No, this parable has an ending that's a little troubling. And it's supposed to be. Jesus' parables are supposed to disrupt our thinking. He ends the parable by saying, so the master delivered that unmerciful servant to the jailers, The Greek literally says, to the torturers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Is Jesus saying that God will revoke his forgiveness if we don't forgive others? No, in this parable, the servant's actions revealed that he never accepted the forgiveness of the king. And so this ending is a challenge for us to test our own hearts. Our reluctance to heed Jesus' call to forgive, our unwillingness to pay the cost to forgive, and our incapacity to forgive may reveal that we have never truly experienced God's forgiveness for ourselves. So this ending is a challenge, but it's also an invitation. It's it's an invitation to come to Jesus and to taste the unimaginable grace and mercy that he offers us. And when we do, it will change us so that we live a life of forgiveness. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, We know that forgiveness is a good thing, and yet we struggle to do it. We struggle to forgive people even one time, let alone without number. 
And Lord, it's, it's so hard because it requires that we pay the cost for someone else's sin. But Lord, you did that in sending your son Jesus to pay our debt, a debt that was totally unpayable. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to see just how great our debt is to you. Would we see that our sins are without number, but that your forgiveness is without number as well. Lord, your steadfast love extends farther than we can imagine. So would we drink deeply of that love and that grace? Would it change us so that we model that grace towards others, so that we may be able to forgive without number just as you call us to? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.